Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 131 for February 14th, 2008. Free CompuSec. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for security now. I know you've been waiting all week with bated breath and unprotected systems to hear what Steve Gibson has to say about security. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you. Good to talk to you. And uh, today we have a new program we're going to talk about in just a little bit that will protect us all. But uh, before we get into that, do you have any uh, any updates? Uh, well, it was a busy week in security news. Um, of course, this is the podcast after my uh, after the second tuesday of the month that is a february the, and the, the first thursday the, after the second tuesday the first thursday <laughs> after the second tuesday now of course the first tuesday of the month was the was the um the presidential primary super tuesday i'm inclined to call this last tuesday the pc industry or i, sh- I should say the microsoft super tuesday yeah. Uh, they released 12 security updates. Wow. Um, many of them are important. I'm not going to go through them in painful detail because, you know, <laughs> it gets sort of redundant at some point. But Windows and Office and VB script and J script and, you know, I mean, it was a, a big oh, and a big new IE update as well, uh, you know, to, to, to catch IE up. There were just a whole bunch of problems many of them rated critical meaning that it's a remote code execution exploit sort of thing so standard practice is just i wanted just to you know remind our listeners that it's important if they don't already have their machines updated uh to recognize that we just crossed the second tuesday of the month and there was a whole bunch of stuff you know it's funny it sometimes takes a couple of days i came in today uh, this morning, and my system said I rebooted last night uh, after installing patches because I have it set to you know automatically install, uh, download and install any patches that come out critical patches, right? Which I think is probably the sensible thing to do. Maybe not necessarily automatically install, but certainly automatically download and notify yeah. you. Yeah, I mean that's what I do too. Of yeah. course, Apple had well, I don't mean to say of course Apple had, but Apple also had a substantial. Uh, update. I mean, in, in terms of hugeness, uh, I it's apparently it's about 180 meg or twice that. If you've got an Intel-based platform, I, I, I'm I, I record our Skype sessions. I use a little Mac Mini uh, that's PowerPC-based, and it had I watched it 180 meg update to the OS, and apparently, oh really, was it that big? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and apparently the in oh, and there were a couple of other little little updates, but this was a biggie. And apparently Intel based machines can be as large as three hundred and sixty megs. Wow. So, you know, it takes a while to I suck don't all think that mine down. was that big. It must be depending on what you've got installed and so forth. That's probably although the case. I you know, they break it up. They say and there's this and there's this and, and mine did reboot 
two times, then wanted to install more and rebooted more. So it was a whatever whatever went on. A lot of some of it was cosmetic. Some of it was not security. For they we talked about this on MacBreak Weekly. They fixed some cosmetic things in Leopard that people didn't like at all. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, also, we talked last week or the week before. I, we mentioned a of an Adobe Acrobat problem that Acrobat had updated recently, but hadn't really talked publicly about what was being fixed. Well, that didn't stop the bad guys from figuring it out. And the the most recent Acrobat flaw is now being actively exploited to install a Trojan called the Zoneback Trojan, which disables AV, uh, alters search results and banner ads, and it's just you know another one of these bad things you don't want to get in your machine. And it, it works by taking advantage of a flaw in essentially in Acrobat that allows a a bad PDF to install a, uh, a this Trojan on your machine. So if you and my Acrobats have recognized that there was a new version and they've updated themselves. So um, if if users haven't launched Acrobat for a while, it's probably worth doing and and having it check for updates because uh, there's definitely something you want to get fixed before you go very further. Uh, Firefox had uh, an also an important update that for me again was automatic. I had Firefox open for a while. I think it was maybe two days ago, and it notified me that it needed to restart itself, having downloaded and and fixed itself. So it's like okay, that now, go was ahead. that go ahead. Now of course, beta three came out of Firefox three, but you're running two. I'm running two. I'm okay. not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not running in beta three, land. Three's yet. actually. I hate to say it, but three's more stable <laughs> than two is. But anyway, well, that's probably where everyone's attention has been. You know, yeah. they're, they're all focused on three. There's like ah, that old version two. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there was a uh, over on the Windows platform. Skype has been having a series of problems uh, involving various scripting exploits. Uh, it was caused by the fact that Skype was invoking the Internet Explorer display control for some of its purposes. And there were, you know, so it's like having IE, unfortunately, hooked into an instant messaging system, which is (laughs) really asking for trouble. And so they they were incrementally fixing them one after the other as they were occurring. And then they they finally figured out that, as the Skype guys did, that this was dumb, that they ought to just do an architectural fix and and the problem was that they were invoking this IE control under the local zone, which had too liberal uh, security. And so now, with this latest final update to Skype, they've they've architecturally improved it so that it's it's opening the IE control in the internet zone that is inherently by default much more tightly bolted down. So that will hopefully will fix. You know, well, well, basically, it would have fixed all the problems they've been having, and this way, they're looking. It's looking like it'll fix things that are coming up in the future. It's so, a little worrisome, though, that a program can decide what zone to install itself into. Yes, because uh, that means it could install <laughs> itself as it did into a lower security zone. If you're a bad guy installing malware on a system, you would do that. Well, yeah, if you shouldn't be able to choose. Um, the it, it makes sense. For software to be able to specify a zone more secure than yes. the default, but the default would be the local zone. I mean, you'd expect that, like an application oh, running on your system right. to be safe, but then you're depending upon 
the the thing you're installing to be safe and to to suggest that Internet Explorer is safe, uh, well, you know, few people would do that. Also, we talked a couple weeks ago about Yahoo's music jukebox uh, ActiveX control that had uh, some problems. Um, they are there is now malware actively exploiting that, installing backdoors on PCs. No fix is available from Yahoo. So the only thing you can do, in fact, is to enable the so-called kill bit to prevent the ActiveX control from functioning. But of course, that shuts down the music jukebox, which is not safe to use. And in fact, there have been so many ActiveX problems that, that finally the, the, uh, the U.S. CERT agency, the U.S. Com- Computer Emergency Readiness Team, has, has just thrown up their hands and recommended that people dis- disable all their ActiveX controls. Really? Because, yes, because it turns out that there are, there are now there are new ActiveX controls which are being supported by Facebook and MySpace, you know, the whole, the whole little new widget thing. And so it's a typical case of non-security aware people being in a big hurry to come out with new Facebook and MySpace widgets, which are operating on web pages. And, you know, and we've talked about ActiveX controls a lot in the past. It just it was a really, really bad idea for Microsoft to allow IE to basically it's like a DLL. You're, it's actual code. It's not even in sandboxable in the same way that that JavaScript or VBScript are. It's it's a DLL essentially that you're downloading and running in someone's machine. And it's like, oh, isn't this nice? Look at this new little widget that I have on my MySpace page. But if it's not carefully written, it's going to be, I mean, it's, it's open to exploitation. And so these are, these ActiveX controls are causing all kinds of problems. So um, one thing any IE user can do to disable ActiveX controls is set their browser security level to high. That is the highest available. And the good news is that tells ActiveX controls, uh, no thank you. And if or, you don't use Internet Explorer, you don't have to worry about it at all. I was just going to say, yes, yeah. exactly. Or if you were using Firefox and you had not, you, you were not using the ActiveX control extension that allows Firefox to invoke ActiveX controls, by default, Firefox doesn't load and, and run ActiveX controls. You'd be safe with Firefox. Yeah. You know, one way Yahoo dealt with this is, of course, to go out of the music business entirely. I don't know if this is related, but they've they've killed their music business. So the jukebox won't be around much longer. Well, that's going to be good news for a lot of people. (laughs) But, you know, it's important to remember that a lot of these uh, programs that use the Internet for uh, content are really just uh, ActiveX controls or, you know, versions of IE or using IE's engine. And so they're just as vulnerable as IE is. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's the easiest way to program it. And on the Mac side, I have to say the same thing happens. The WebKit, which is basically Safari, is used uh, for a lot of Internet access in a lot of programs. So when there's a WebKit vulnerability, just as when there's an IE vulnerability, it propagates to all these other programs. Yeah. Well, before we get on, I'm sure you have a spin right letter, and I'd love to get oh, that. Oh, I got a great one, actually. Well, you want to, let's do it now, and then I'll, uh, okay. then I'll talk about Astara. Okay, now, this, this individual who wrote to me has asked for an anonymity because he doesn't want to get fired. Um, oh, the, the, that's the always subject, a good way to start. <laughs> the subject was, wow, spin right really works. And he says, hey, Steve, first, 
Let me start off by saying that I listen to Security Now every week and haven't missed a single episode. Okay, now on to my story. I am a Geek Squad agent at Best Buy. And as such, I'm constantly seeing failed hard drives coming in. It's sad because I know that many of them would be back to normal with just a few hours of Spinrite working its magic. One customer named, okay, now I've changed the name here. Uh, We'll call him John, uh, although I had his real name in the original note. Um, One customer named John came in with the look of desperation, as do most customers who come into the Geek Squad precinct. (laughs) (laughs) He says, John stated that his five-year-old Dell laptop kept on blue screening with the error message, unmountable boot disk. I immediately thought of Spinrite. Best Buy, sadly, does not have a Spinrite Enterprise license, or any license at all for that matter. So the, quote, agents are not allowed to use it, unquote. He says, I have emailed corporate about this, and they said they will see if the budget allows them to purchase one. I explained the profit Best Buy will generate with all the backups customers come in for, but we turn away because their file system and drive are too corrupted. Mm. He says, I had two options. I could send out his hard drive to Best Buy Service Center for a fee of $1,712.32. $1,712.32. What? $1,712.32. And he says in parents, tax included. Wow. He, he said, or I could tell him about Spinrite, surely risking my job as this would be cutting revenue from Best Buy's bottom line. But I couldn't let him spend the $1,700 plus dollars knowing Spinrite would probably work for literally 25 times less. So I did it. I told him about Spinrite, where to get it, and how to use it. Needless to say, you took a panicking radio personality and turned him into one happy man. Not me. (laughs) Not you. He says, here is a quote from the email he sent me. Quote, my computer had finished with Spinrite when I got home from work today. Everything you said would happen did. My huh. computer is now operational Excellent. again. He says, and then he, so so this this author says, thanks, Steve, and the GRC team for making an amazing product and making my job a lot easier. I will continue recommending Spinrite for the rest of my life. And then he says, P.S. If you share this testimonial, please either change my name or blank it out. I do not want to get fired. Yeah, because he's supposed to send it in for that seventeen hundred dollar repair. Uh, You're costing us money, kid. <laughs> yeah, it. well, and it's funny, too, because an enterprise license is 10 copies of Spinrite. Yeah. So that's $890. So it's less than half the cost of one of those right. $1,712.32, right. you know, Geek Squad fixes. So it's like, well, you know, they could certainly have an enterprise license with, with no problem. I might even know who that personality was, but I'll ask you off the air. <laughs> I, think, I, have, I have my suspicions about who that's, that's who that might be, but it wasn't me. Say that right now, because I have a copy of Spinrite. That's, of course, uh, I was going to say. That's the first thing I try, uh, and it did work for me just the, uh, uh, you remember about a year ago it was that we yeah. lost a hard drive, and I, I've, I'm still using it, by the way, so it, it did fix it. Uh, let me also mention a couple of things uh, before we uh, go much farther. One is... Um, 
Oh, I forgot what it was. <laughs> it was really it was a security thing, and I thought you would want to know this, and I oh. and I forgot it. Where it is? Oh, S Service Pack One. What am I thinking of? Uh, Vista. Microsoft uh, is moving that schedule up, and they've just announced that they're going to have it for MSDN users by the end of this week on the 16th. So we're getting very close to Service Pack 1 for Vista, which will be, I'm sure, an improvement. And certainly will roll up all those patches into one big file. Um, so Vista has a whole bunch as well. I'm, you know, I don't use Vista. Well, there's so service. I yeah, yeah, I know you're back in Windows 2000. So for those of you in the 21st century, let me no, just. No, but, e- but even XP. I mean, I'm XP excited has about Service Pack X- Three. Yeah. Yes, and I'm excited about that one. Service Pack. And Paul and I talk about it quite a bit on Windows Weekly. Uh, but and so I'm going off of what he tells me. But Service Pack Three on XP is really just a roll up of all the patches to date. But you need it because, of course, after you install Service Pack 2, you could spend 10 hours rebooting and reinstalling the rest of the patches. And so, so how is Service Pack 1 different on it's Vista? It changes some of the way Vista behaves. And there's some ah. questions, some debate about whether it's fast or not. A lot of people have, have been trying it, but it's not official code. Um, the official code will go out on MSDN this week, and they say sometime in March we'll start getting pushed out to end users. But uh, we, I don't know, you know, I only know it. Paul wrote, wrote a little bit of an FAQ if you want to read more about it at the uh, Supersite for Windows, winsupersite.com. And, of course, we'll talk about it tomorrow on Windows Weekly. As and we I did hear do. that it was RTM, so apparently... It is RTM, and that's, as I said, it's going to go out to a tech, a MSDN folks uh, day, today or tomorrow, by the end of this week, they said. Hey, real quickly, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by the good folks at you-know-who, A-S-T-A-R-O, astaro.com, the great yay, yay unified threat management system it's a, you know, it looks just like a router. This is where it's a little deceptive. It's a, it's a, the, the gateway I use, it's not much bigger than my uh, D-Link router, but let me tell you, it does a whole lot more. I mean, this is a complete set of security technologies, open source and commercial. I think you get three antiviruses, two for, two for uh, uh, email, one for the web. You get anti-spyware. Of course, you get complete control over what your clients are doing with their desktops, including filtering things like P2P, instant messaging. You get uh, VPN, all the major flavors of VPN, including IPsec, L2TP over IPsec, PPTP tunneling, SSL, which is fantastic, makes it very easy. You get encryption built in, SMIME and OpenPGP. It happens at the Astaro box, so your clients don't know that they're doing encryption and decryption. It's automatic for them, and signing, it's automatic for them. Really a great way to secure your whole enterprise. And now you can get a Starro Security Gateway for free in your office. A demo unit is available by calling 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. If you're a Cisco PIX user, ask about the special deal for PIX users. PIX is being discontinued. I know a lot of PIX users are looking for a replacement. A Starro's the way to go. 877, the number for Astaro, and ask about the uh, discount for PIX trade-in. And of course, as always, non-commercial users can try it at home for free, including a complete license for the Astaro up-to-date and all of the anti- antivirus and everything. If you have a little skill and you have a lo- beige box lying around, this is such a good way to go. Ab- I mean, really secure stuff free. Astaro.com slash security now. We thank them for their support of security now. A-S-T- aro.com so we would talked about TrueCrypt at great length in the past yes Free, we've open talked open source ab- yep and and actually a, a prior version um the way i got into 
today's topic. Today's topic is I, I, I referred to it a week or two ago. It's a it's a very interesting and very impressive system that I found, which is called Free CompuSec. Um, the problem was I was doing some, uh, have been doing some sort of just free consulting for a friend. Uh, she's in the process of setting up a little office and w- with some computers and a network. And um, she's in the, the human resources field and is very security conscious, which I'm glad for. I didn't have to do any preaching to her about you know the problems of security. In fact, she was the motivation for my checking out and coming up to speed on Windows steady state because one of the problems she has had in in previous um, entrepreneurial ventures um, is employees coming in and just installing their own crap on company computers right and and I mean that which is you know really a problem so so steady state was the solution for preventing um, you know that kind of employee abuse of of corporate resources. But she has this – the other real concern is since, since, since she's an HR company and she hears the – she wa- reads the Wall Street Journal and she hears all the horror stories about people getting laptops stolen or computers stolen where hard drives have really confidential information on them. So she said, you know, Steve, what do I do about protecting our workstations from, you know, someone breaking in and stealing them and discovering all of this, you know – potentially, you know, you know, very confidential data on them. Well, so, you know, that means, okay, it means one way or another, we need to prevent the hard drive from being readable without authorization. Now, we've talked about drive passwords in the past. And for example, you know, my laptops have a a fingerprint reader on them. And I use the uh, TPM, the Trusted Platform Module, built into the motherboard that contains the the code for essentially unlocking my hard drive. I don't have the whole drive encrypted, but I'm using the the drive password facility that's been available on little hard drives, especially laptop drives, for years now. The idea being that that only if I swipe my finger when I power up or restart the machine, will the BIOS give the hard drive the password that it's been, been, it's been registered with to essentially enable the hard drive? Without that, if, if, if someone got my machine and, and took the drive out of it, the only thing they can possibly do is low-level reformat the drive in order to get access to it that is the pro- it has to it would wipe it to zeros in order to cause it to unlock now that's not secure against you know governmental agency scale attack that is if 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 i had a hard drive on my laptop and it was absolutely imperative that the data be recovered the because it's not actually encrypted on the magnetic surface it would certainly be possible, you know, to go back to Hitachi or Seagate or wherever, and with enough inducement, I'm sure they're able to unlock the drive. So, you know, government subpoena sort of um, uh, scale access is still possible, but I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about, you know, l- losing control of my drive and having it fall into bad guys' hands because certainly a, a – Drive password is sufficient 
to protect the information at that level. And I don't really have anything super confidential on my system that I'm, you know, I mean, I've, again, I don't want to, I don't want to lose control of it, but the drive password is just fine. Now, the, the next level up is native hard drive encryption, which is, as, as we've also said in the past, beginning to be available. It was an option that I just decided not to pursue uh, when I purchased my most recent ThinkPads is for an additional X amount of dollars it seemed like eh, more than I needed to spend for, for that. The drive itself uses the AES, the Rheindahl cipher. And so the BIOS, in, in, in a similar fashion to unlocking it, but, but the BIOS is actually giving it a passphrase, which the drive does not store on itself anywhere, but that passphrase is used to perform on-the-fly encryption and decryption. So inside the drive, everything that I write to the drive runs through AES encryption on the way down to the magnetic surface and runs back through it on, on the way out. So it's, there's no overhead in time at all. That is, you get 100% performance that way. And what's on the drive is always encrypted. That is the swap file, the hibernation file, all the contents. I mean, you know, the the um, your your deleted files. I mean, everything. And so, without that, without giving the drive the passphrase that it's looking for, uh, there's just there's no way anybody. And again, n- not even under governmental level subpoena strength. I mean, it is pseudo random data on the drive, which can only be decrypted by giving it the proper passphrase. Now, as we know, brute force attack would, would is possible. So you want a really good passphrase, something that, that, that couldn't be brute forced. But that's the only vulnerability that would be available would be asking the drive, here, take this as a passphrase. Now give me the first sector. Does this look like the boot sector or not? And until you gave it the right passphrase, you wouldn't. On the other hand, it would be reading this thing from the drive constantly so you couldn't brute force fast. It would take a long time to brute force, um, you know, a a hard drive's magnetic media like that. So, so, so. Either password protecting the drive or native hard drive encryption are those first two options. Now, in the case of the workstations that 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 my friend had, she did she had no TPM on the it was like the bottom of the bottom of the line Dell workstation did not have any security built in. There was not the ability in the BIOS to set a hard drive password. So I couldn't even lock her drive if the drive had that option mm. and and certainly there was no native hard drive encryption so what i needed you know it's to- funny i just just i don't mean to interrupt but and i, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this <clears throat> there is a hard drive locking built into the ide spec right yes it's been built into the atapi the the so-called uh, atapi uh which is uh don't oh try God. to get that acronym. It's I'm okay. I'm blanking. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's because the reason I, this came up is somebody mentioned that uh, called the uh, TV show and said, my hard drive's locked. So, you know, it's an old machine. 
And uh, I did some research. I found out about this Atapi locking, but that's not yeah, encryption, it, is it? It, it, it? It's ATA, which is the, the the ATA spec is the original spec, right? And PI is packet interface, uh-huh. ATA packet interface. Um, I'm sorry, I was so busy trying to remember the acronym. <laughs> I, did, I didn't hear what you said. So the question is: Is this encryption or is it just locking? In other words, many machines will have it because it's such an old. It's part of the old Atapi spec. But does oh, this? Yes, um, almost every drive anyone has been able to purchase for the last can do it, right? yeah. 10 years can, can be locked, but not encrypted. Encrypted I is see. only in the last uh, six months or so. Does locking just, keep people off of it, though? I mean, you can't get into it if it's locked, right? Absolutely. You cannot get into it if it's locked, and the system is very mature. And so in, in, if people have BIOSes where the BIOS gives you the ability to um to give a, to to create a hard drive password and now see this is something that, that's been available on laptops right m- for a much longer period of time than it's been available on desktops that's why i bring it up right and and so you know that's very good encryption it's all i well, i'm sorry it's very good protection, protection. It's, right. it's not encryption it's very good protection because the hard drive will refuse to be a hard drive until the bios gives it the unlock password it's, but because the data is not actually encrypted, it you know under government subpoena, I'm sure that Seagate or right, Hitachi right. or whomever or you know could could say, okay, we've removed the lock from the drive, um, grand jury. Now you can you know right. you're you're able to, to to see what's there. So so here I was faced with the problem of so she did of, she wouldn't use something like that. That would well, be she, insufficient. She, she can't. Because it's not available in her BIOS. Ah, it's, it has to be she, supported in the BIOS as well as on the drive. I get it. You have to have an interface to it for obvious reasons. Yeah. Well, yeah. You you have to you have to have code which will use the Atapi spec at power up time right, right. to give the hard drive the unlocking password that it's looking for before you can even read sector one on right, the drive. Right. I mean, you you can't get to the partition sector right. without that. So. So I was faced with, okay, a, a desktop system like most of us have that doesn't offer you a hard drive password option. Mm-hmm. So, and it was absolutely critical that if the machine got stolen, it could not, the, the, the data would be protected. So I dug around, and this is a couple of months ago, and came up with this system. Uh, it's uh, out of Singapore, called Free CompuSec. And if any of our listeners just put F R E E space C O M P U S E C into Google, it's the first link that comes up. And it's no, uh, no, I'm confused C- because it's from C E Infosys. Yes, correct. That correct. That's a, that's, the, that's a German company. Um, yes, and I, I, in fact, they've got they have three different offices around the globe. Okay. So I don't know what the lineage of this is, but I know that that some of the stuff ends up coming out of Singapore. And you're right, but but CE Infosys is German. I see. Um, so I have to say I am very impressed with the system. I um, I've looked at it very carefully. I had to really understand it before I was going to going to you know trust it and 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 stick it on these workstations um let me explain how this works it's called it's called pre-boot authentication and it's significant not only for this but also for the most recent version of TrueCrypt. 
TrueCrypt 5.0 just came out of beta like a week and a half ago. Um, in fact, it was on February 5th that came out of beta. They tweaked it a week later, just um, two days ago, in fact, on February 12th of 2008. They tweaked it and fixed a problem, which is interesting to, which was interesting to me because it's a problem that, that free CompuSec doesn't have because of the way they implemented their their system. But here's the here's here's the idea. We want to encrypt the entire drive. I mean that's the only way to keep if the BIOS won't support unlocking the drive, then we need to do something as the system starts to boot. So the drive is not locked. It's because because the BIOS won't do that for us. So it turns out that, and I mentioned this in passing recently, the the so-called boot sector or the part the partition sector of a hard drive is actually executable code. The BIOS loads it into low memory and jumps to the front of it. It actually runs the partition sector, which has just enough code. A, a sector on a hard drive is 512 bytes. It has just enough code to interpret the table at the end of that sector, which is the so-called partition table. It's got four entries in it, and and it'll read that table, which tells that code where to find the beginning of the bootable partition, which it then loads into memory and runs. So it's because the partition table that is the partition sector is actually executable that a number of tricky things have been possible over time i believe we've talked about boot it ng which is one of my favorite that is my favorite multi os booting tool I where i don't know if we have mentioned that um you uh, it it runs in um, it's actually OS independent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, it's not free, but it's very good, and it's not very expensive. Booted NG uh, is um, you install it on a hard drive, and it it installs itself in the first track of the drive. Now, an an interesting quirk of of hard drive history is that partitions always start on an even track boundary. So if you've got the partition sector um, on the first sector of the drive, which is where it is, it's literally, it's on the very physical first sector. That's where every BIOS knows to find the partition sector. Well, it's being there essentially ruins the rest of the track. Hmm. You can't have partition data on the rest of the track. Once upon a time, that was no big deal. That was we had 17 sector MFM drives, <laughs> and so we, we, you know, we we would the 18th sector was the beginning of the partition. Then we went to RLL that had 26 sectors. Now we've got drives that have many, many, many more physical sectors. But for for other historical reasons, the maximum number of sectors you can have on a track, lo- logical sectors, is 63 and you'd think well it ought to be 64 because that's a power of two except that sectors are numbered from one so there is no zero with sector that's hmm. the, the first sector is number one and you go up to 63 so my point is that there's you always have 
the first 63 sectors of a hard drive almost uncommitted because that first sector is the partition table and the the partition table sector and the first the, the the beginning of the of the of the first partition will start on the second the first the, well the, the first he, uh, I'm getting myself confused the first sector of the second head of the drive so that is to say the second track of the drive so you've got you've got almost 64 sectors you've got 63 sectors each 512 bytes long so a little less than 32k bytes of space which where clever people can tuck a program so for example booted ng uh, creates a custom boot sector that displays a simple text menu on the screen allowing you to choose which os you want to boot and in fact i do remember leo on the screensavers many many moons ago some guy wanted to see how many bootable OS's they could have on one drive. Do you remember that that episode of the screensaver? Yes, because somebody had hundreds, right? It was just it, it crazy. Was, it was insane. I don't even know yes. how he found that many operating <laughs> systems. So, so anyway, so um, a custom bootloader will take advantage of the fact that a partition sector is actually executable code. Another another class of of application that has used this fact there were some there there was um it used to be that bioses did not know how to handle this the advent of really big drives and so when you would buy a copy for example of um I must well buy a copy you you'd buy a very big hard drive like a big Mac store drive they would come with a little CD or a little diskette that had a sort of a BIOS patching utility right, right, that, that, that yeah. would allow it would allow an older machine to recognize a drive's full size. Well, that worked in the same fashion. It altered the partition sector to to add some code that would essentially replace the BIOS's table that didn't just didn't understand how to deal with drives of that size with a much bigger table. So they were, and of course now, all contemporary BIOSes are up to speed, and they know how to ask the drive how big it is, and so they sort of adapt themselves dynamically rather than having a fixed table of drive sizes. Well, the final really interesting possibility here for what to do with the fact that a partition sector is executed code is pre-boot authentication. That is, you could have an entire drive encrypted except just the first track just this this chunk of data that is behind the par- the the partition sector that could be executable code which is is enough to get the system booted that is you it would prompt you it would put up some sort of a screen and prompt you for a passphrase or a username and passphrase or, or whatever they want to where you're authenticating yourself to the system. That code would then proceed to read in the beginning of the bootable partition, decrypting it on the fly. That is, it, was, it would read the physical sectors, 
decrypting those sectors as it loads them into memory and and it would stay in control essentially it it would be it would be there's an old interrupt i know really well as the author of spinright called interrupt 13 which is the way the bios does its its data reading and writing so interrupt 13 and the bios code is what gets windows going until windows own driver takes over takes over control from the bios and 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 runs from there so so you could have this pre-boot authentication technology which would it would hook the interrupt 13 bios that is it would essentially it would intercept interrupt 13 on the fly performing on the fly decryption until windows took over and then a companion windows driver would know how to continue decrypting the drive in order to allow windows to run and the entire drive to appear decrypted to windows because because the, the, there would be a a seamless handoff between the decryption that happens to get windows going and then a new windows driver that's provided by the same decryption system that would pick it up and continue and so what this allows is it allows the entire drive to be encrypted i mean really really strong encryption it's, it uses 256 bit aes rindall encryption no force on earth could could cause this data to be decrypted unless you provided it with the authentication information at boot up and um, and once going, Windows just sees it as a regular drive. It sees it as, you know, it, it has full access to it, and it's able to use it. But if if anything happened, for example, the drive got stolen or the system got stolen, which was what um, uh, I was concerned about, about preventing, there's no, absolutely no vulnerability of, of the data on the system. Can I be a turd in the punch bowl here? Sure. <laughs> it's not an open source encryption program, is it? No, it's not. Uh, it's free, but not open and, source. And here's why I raise that issue is, I mean, I don't know this company. I don't know what backdoors there are. It's not even a U.S. company. Not that I would trust it more if it were a U.S. company. But this is why I stick with things like TrueCrypt. I don't know what's in there. I don't know if there's a backdoor in there. Well, that's a very good point. Uh, uh, more to my concern was that as I was getting to know this system, I um, I had some questions about specifically how things were done. That is, you know, exactly right. how... You can't tell how they've implemented it because you can't see the source. That's very true. It's very true. Now, I have to say, this hasn't put me off of it at all. Yeah, because you're for, a closed source guy. <laughs> well, because, you know, I mean... You're already you're, using Windows. I mean, I guess you're already... Well, that environment. yeah, I, I mean, there's certainly far more danger from from the use of Windows on right. Internet Explorer right. than there is from the, this whole drive encryption system. Now, one of the things that I was concerned about was what is the overhead of doing this? Because we've got a software driver that is essentially imposed itself between Windows and the hardware, that is Windows and the drive, 
And although drives are not super speedy, we know. Anyway, I mean, it's not like it, it, it's a software de, uh, encryption decryption that is sitting there between Windows and RAM or something where there would be tremendous overhead. So what I did was I made a, a drive, I used drive snapshot to create an image of the system. Mm. And I actually had a, a, an image that was that, that I had made of of a of a of the system from, I don't know, like a year before. Mm-hmm. So. Needless to say, there were many Windows updates, many security updates since that image. So what I did was, uh, and anyone who's ever used Windows Update knows that, that that just frags a hard drive horribly because you've got all of these files that are being replaced and, and old ones deleted and so forth. So what this allowed me to do was this allowed me to create a, a an environment where I was able to benchmark the performance of of this free CompuSec whole drive encryption before and after. So I so I I returned the system to an old image. I then uh oh and I also set up uh Vopt. Uh, uh Vopt is able to run from a command line and I found a com- I found a command line timer program. It was part of um uh a, a Windows resource kit called Ntimer that allowed me to to time the execution of Vopt running from a command line to defrag this this very fragmented system. So I went I I, I went to the image, I updated it with with uh, Windows Update to bring it current, which just fragmented it to pieces. Then um, then I timed the exec- the the a defrag operation without free CompuSec installed. Then I restored the image, re-updated it so that it was again fragged in exactly the same fashion, um, this time with free CompuSec installed. Um, the defrag without any encryption took five minutes and 23 seconds for, to, in order to bring the drive back to a known defragged state. Five minutes and 23 seconds. With free CompuSec installed, it was five minutes and 54 seconds. That's not bad. So it was really not bad. It was less than 10% overhead. It was 9.74% overhead, which is unnoticeable in, in any sort of you know, regular usage scenario. Mm. So, okay, so that's just one of the things. That is, this whole drive encryption is just one of the things that free CompuSec does. Um, it also, and, and again, this is a. I, I have to say, I am very impressed with the system. Uh, it creates log files for itself. It installs itself carefully. You're able to you're able to encrypt the whole drive from outside of Windows or from inside of Windows. Um, if you do it from inside, I mean, it's sort of freaky, but you can literally be encrypting it while you're using Windows because it's moving from the front of the drive uniformly forward hmm. it knows it knows where it is that's how far it's gotten and so and that's just a simple a sector number i'm now on sector number this now i'm on sector number this and so the driver the windows driver is being informed in in a synchronous fashion whether or not to decrypt based on whether it's accessing earlier on the drive that is already encrypted, so it needs to be decrypted on the fly and re-encrypted for, for any rights, or whether we haven't gotten that far yet, in which case the data is still in the clear. You're able even to shut down Windows and then restart it 
and it will pick up where it left off and continue the encryption process. Um, so they have this whole drive encryption as part of the free CompuSec suite. Also, CD encryption. You can you can create encrypted CDs and DVDs, which are are burned with any of a number of keys that it, it will make. And again, what the, you know, the result is a CD or a DVD that is just noise. It is pseudo-random, meaningless noise unless you have the matching key. And this, this all uses AES 256-bit and Rheindahl cipher. It will also handle removable media encryption, diskettes, any removable drives or USB drives. You're able to you're able to specify for any drives that the system has whether you want them to be encrypted or or in the clear and so it will it will do on the fly encryption to and from reading and writing from those drives it will do individual file encryption using um Diffie-Hellman public key crypto so you're able it'll create a pair of keys a public and a private key as we've discussed in you know many times in the past um um so well, that you're able why to why would you have public private key encryption for a drive oh no for, for individual files oh i see for files so you could send somebody the file or they could send you a file better yet yeah exactly it, uh, yeah you would be able to publicly post your public key and then they would use this to encrypt a file that they send you and and you know that it was encrypted using that key and you're the only one who's able to decrypt it. Right. They even have what they call safe LAN is on-the-fly LAN encryption that allows you to create folders and, and directories on a remote server which are fully encrypted over the LAN. So any data that is being transacted uh, through Windows file sharing to a full to any file in a folder will be encrypted before it leaves your machine so it's all encrypted across the network and stored that way with a nice hierarchical i think it's six or seven levels of of key hierarchy where you're able to specify um with, with a lot of granularity who is able to access um which files on the LAN. so for example you could have multiple systems all sharing files on a common server yet no, and, and have good control over who is able to access and, and essentially see which files that, that are being shared on the server. And finally, secure VOIP hmm. is part of this. It's hmm. the, now, the, all of this is also available for Linux, um, except the VOIP is Windows only. So if if there were an application, for example, within your corporation where, for whatever reason, you need point-to-point, absolutely secure audio link, audio conversation, you know, voice over IP, this system has it through a system called Closed Talk, which uses the same crypto technology, um, builds the whole infrastructure for a, a, a VOIP system where – at where, where everything going over the link, again, is just pseudo-random noise, hmm. absolutely decipherable unless you have the key, and they've got all of the technology, uh, and a really nice presentation, I have to say. I'm, I'm very impressed with this package. Um, now, the, the only thing I know that competes with this is TrueCrypt 5, 
which is just out, as I said, uh, updated two days ago. It was interesting. One of the one of the update notes for for TrueCrypt mentioned that they had reduced the size of the of the decompressor or or of of the of the pre-authentication stuff by 18k, which would solve a problem that apparently many people had been having since its release of of TrueCrypt saying that it was out of space. Mm. What that meant is that remember we we talked about how there are literally 62 sectors of space behind the partition sector, which is probably where TrueCrypt was storing its data. Um, the free CompuSec system works differently because um, I did, uh, even though I've never been able to get a hold of these guys, um, their, their, their sector, their um, partition sector references areas on the main C drive and is able to load those, and those are locked in place. I'm very sure, although I haven't done an extensive analysis of TrueCrypt, we're going to address TrueCrypt 5 in an episode here within the next few weeks because I want to, I want to, I want to essentially wrap up this whole, the whole question of, of pre-boot authentication and whole volume, whole drive decryption. Um, TrueCrypt, it looks to me like, allows you to encrypt one partition, whereas free CompuSec encrypts the entire physical hard drive. There is no provision for only encrypting one partition of the hard drive, so it does the entire thing, which you know may or may not be a problem. One thing that free CompuSec does that TrueCrypt does not do, and they make a point about this, so it must be a, 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 something that's difficult to do, is hot support for hibernation. Free CompuSec will encrypt the hibernation file, which is a snapshot of the system RAM mm-hmm. at the time the system was hibernated. Mm-hmm. TrueCrypt cannot, and so it disables hibernation mode completely when you are using a TrueCrypt volume. Because so it's a security vulnerability, because that hibernate, hibernate file would be un, unencrypted. Yes, it is unencrypted, and it shows, you know, it's, it's like it's a snapshot yeah. of RAM. It'll yeah. have your various keys. It'll have right. the, the, the files that are open, everything you're doing at the time of, of hibernation. Now, the, the problem is, I mean, I'm, I'm an, a, a, an avid user of hibernation. I boot my system, my, my, my laptops very rarely because hibernating is just, you know, I mean, in the original days, hibernation was kind of flaky. Sometimes the system wouldn't come back from hibernation. You, you know, your, your VGA screen wouldn't, wouldn't work again or whatever. Or sometimes USB wasn't functioning right. Well, that's all been worked out. And Microsoft has put a lot of time into uh, power state management in Windows. So, you know, I, I come in and out of hibernation constantly with, with my laptop. Again, I'm, I don't know how concerned I would be if my hibernation file were not encrypted, but it's definitely something to be aware of, that it is something that TrueCrypt specifically does not do, and they disable hibernation if you, in, if you encrypt your entire drive um, because you know, they want to make sure you understand that, that this is no longer safe, whereas free CompuSec does manage to encrypt the drive. So um, it is it is at least one difference between them. So I just want to say that I'm, despite the fact that, as you say, Leo, it's not 
it's not open source. Um, I've spent a lot of time with this thing. I'm very impressed with the technology, and um, I wouldn't hesitate to use it for for even though it's not. Um, entirely scrutinizable from an open source standpoint. I'm just a paranoid. I just figure, oh, some government has created this, particularly the VoIP. That's, you know, it's one thing. If, okay, so I encrypt my hard drive. They don't want my hard drive. And how? who cares if they have a backdoor to my hard drive, whoever they is. But VoIP might be the kind of thing, you you know, if I were a government, I'd encourage people to use our, quote, encrypted voice over Internet so I could abs- I could snoop on them. Sure. So that's, I mean, that's it, makes it, me nervous. Definitely a possibility. Yeah. I pretty much generally when it comes to encryption, I like to stick to open source stuff just because at least it can be verified by not by me, certainly maybe by you, maybe by somebody who knows what they're doing. But I just presume that it has been. Um, and I don't even know who these guys have. You, had you heard of this company in CE Infosys before? I hadn't. No, although I, I did pick up a pointer from one of our listeners who said they've got a very good reputation. Yeah, well, they've been around for 27 years, it says on the website. So, yeah, I mean, you know. If you're if you're encrypting your company's laptops, you don't really care if some government has a back door to them. That's not the issue. It's the bad guys you're worried about. It, the, it is ce-infosys.com. You know, I want to I'm gonna bring this up in a second. You know, it's a couple of interesting recent court cases about encrypted drives. Yes, as a matter of fact, I was going to talk about a Washington Post uh, uh, story, but but go ahead. What do you? No, know? Let's do that first, and then uh, or actually, let's do that. Let me do an ad first. How about that? And then we'll and then we'll get to that because I do want to mention audible.com audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, that's the URL. If you want to find out more about the best way to listen to books, you're already listening to podcasts on your portable player or your computer or maybe you're burning them to CDs. Audible lets you listen to books exactly the same way on your computer, on your portable player, burn them to CD. Audible has forty five thousand plus titles. From bestsellers to classics, uh, just wonderful stuff. A great way to learn while you're driving in the car. You know, if you have a long commute, and I know many of you have hours. If you uh, if you work out, I was listening to my Audible book. I'm listening to The Keep by Jennifer Egan, which Megan recommended some time ago. Oh, it's a good book. I was listening to that this morning when I was working out. If you're if you're if you're a family, when we drove to, uh, um. Jenny Lake Lodge in the beautiful, um, oh, where is it? It's in Montana. Oh, it's gorgeous. We listened to audiobooks all the way. Better than DVDs because the whole family listens together. You know, it's not an isolating experience. And it was just, it was so much fun. And probably better than, you know, singing 99 bottles of beer on the Lots. wall. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a five-day trip. You really wouldn't want to sing that. that no. Whole, no, that, that would really have ruined the trip. No, we listen to Bud Not Buddy and a bunch of great stuff. In fact, it makes me want to go on a road trip with my kids again. I would, I would listen to Tarzan of the Apes. They have the, they have the complete Tarzan of the Apes, Edgar Rice Burroughs classic, and I know everybody would enjoy that. There's science fiction, of course. In fact, many science fiction classics we've mentioned before. Dune. There's a, a wonderful Dune. It's the full unabridged Dune, but it's a uh, dramatization. So uh, all the different characters have different actors doing the voices, which makes it really, really fun audible.com i'm sorry audiblepodcast.com it's a special url just for you steve audiblepodcast.com slash security now go there you sign up you get your coupon for a free book pick any of these great books there's so many good ones to choose from and if you decide not to stick around no charge to you but i have a feeling you'll want to some of the best books in the world all on audio what a great way to read audiblepodcast.com slash security now we thank them for their support of security now and in fact the entire twit network 
So uh, I guess this was a fella coming across the border from Can- into Canada from the U.S. Yep, you and I have the same story. Yeah. Yeah. He had on his hard drive some pretty nasty titled oh. files. I mean, really, oh. I, I wouldn't even want to say them out loud. They were uh, so nasty. No, I, I was planning not even to mention the the content that this guy had. I mean, it uh, doesn't sound good, but it's just a file name. They were encrypted. He admitted that he downloads porn and occasionally comes across child porn, which he immediately deletes. Canadian officials arrested him, or I guess it was U.S. officials, because like, he's coming in from Canada, arrested him right. and prosecuted, saying, you got to give us the password. You have to unencrypt this. They couldn't do it themselves. I don't know what he was using, but they couldn't unencrypt them uh, without the password. So he obviously was using strong encryption. He refused. A judge has ruled that it's, it's, he has the right to, uh, not to avoid self-incrimination. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it was essentially the, the judge said that, we ha- that he has a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself. Fascinating. Very controversial. I mean, let's say, let's not say it, the child porn thing makes it, you know, kind of as a MacGuffin. It makes it more controversial. But let's say he had on there, uh, you know, it said a file saying a plot to blow up the Pentagon. So then it's, I mean, that's still pretty bad, but you get the idea. It doesn't, do, does, do police officials have the right to demand passwords? The judge says no. In fact, this isn't the first case. In another case, a few years ago, a judge said uh, it would be equivalent to demanding to look into somebody's mind. You have a right to privacy. Right. So that's kind of interesting. It means, at least in this country, it's not true in in many other countries, including England. Uh, But in this country, the courts seem to protect your right to encrypt stuff and keep it encrypted well and yeah and and the reason i found this really interesting was that it it does speak to the question that people have asked it's like okay well if i've if i really want to keep my private data private from everyone mm-hmm. and i use the te- and i have the technology to do it and i mean th- and i mean this is the problem that the fbi and justice department face now is that you know they they make the point that more and more people are using state of the art encryption technology for their own privacy and that it completely thwarts them yeah. because there I mean there aren't back doors to this kind of technology it, it, when it's implemented correctly there is none there's nothing they can do and so it's extremely frustrating for them because here they've got you know bad guys that are hiding evidence of of their wrongdoing behind the technology and using the technology and you know so it's you know we've argued uh, and we've talked about this several times Leo I mean the, the morality and the ethics of this we've argued that it's not the technology's fault that it's that good that I mean it it, it is a is it's a tool both for protecting free speech and unfortunately it and privacy but unfortunately there's a dark side too it protects the bad guys um who were able to use it i was frankly stunned i i, I did this the court decision surprised me i did would not have expected that um yeah it says on november 29th magistrate judge jerome j niedermeyer ruled that compelling sebastian butcher a 30-year-old drywall installer who lives in vermont to enter his password into it that is to say so compelling him to enter his password into his laptop would violate his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. The judge said, quote, if Bocher does know the password, he would be faced with the forbidden trilemma of either incriminating himself, lying under oath, or finding himself in contempt of court. 
and ending so judge, up in jail because he wouldn't give him the password. Yeah, and so the judge said we, you know, he he is protected by the U.S. Constitution against being forced to give up the password. Now, uh, you know, I've I've spoken to the Secret Service and and law enforcement officials, and I've asked them this question. This was some years ago, and they said, well, you know, we usually just ask the guy, and they give it to us. A lot of crooks don't make a big deal about not giving up the password. They're intimidated or whatever they do give up the password as part of you know i'm sure they get read the miranda rights but as part of the interrogation uh that this is something that they willingly give up they're also you know that's one of the things about TrueCrypt is this plot i don't know if uh, compusec has it but uh TrueCrypt has this quote plausible deniability where you can't tell you know the, the flaw in this 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 butcher's problem was that, that you could read the file name and if he had to use TrueCrypt, you wouldn't even know there was any data there wouldn't look like a file at all Correct. There, there. In 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 TrueCrypt, you're able to essentially use a space at the end of the container, the the container file you create to create an additional sort of hidden place. And the way TrueCrypt builds its container, it when you set up a TrueCrypt container, it fills it all with pseudo random data that looks just like nice. pseudo random data. Yeah. I mean, and that yeah. that's what it is. So there's no way to to forensically analyze a true crypt container and determine what's in it or whether there's anything else in it. So you, you're able to give up, for example, your external password and they and and go, oh look, here's what I've got in my true crypt container. Well, the fact is you could still have another one, but there's no way for them to know or ever prove that you actually had another one that unlocked this, this essentially sort of a hidden compartment inside the container. Right. So it's it's very clever. And and no, uh, free CompuSec doesn't have anything like that right. because it doesn't work in file containers. Right, right. It's it encrypts the entire hard and drive. And it would be immediately apparent that the drive is encrypted. There's also I don't know if it's TrueCrypt. I think it is TrueCrypt. There's some some program that has this capability of uh, having a, a pseudo key which you give the law enforcement people and it unlocks something completely benign and you're off the hook and the stuff that you're really trying to hide now i'm not supporting all this because i mean i think about a terrorist fortunately terrorists don't seem to be technologically very savvy but i think about a terrorist how they could use this look it's a picture of you know mickey mouse and instead it's you know blueprints uh, uh of uh you know rocky the rocky mountain um missile silos so you know i i i'm, I'm a mixed feelings about this you know well, the one last thing I want to mention relative to hard drive encryption, that is whole drive encryption, and this applies to native hard drive encryption where it's being done in the drive's hardware and also to free CompuSec or the whole drive encryption offered by TrueCrypt that we'll be covering extensively once I brought myself up to speed on it completely is it completely solves the problem of discarding your hard drive. Oh, that yes, is, that's right. You take, you take one of these drives out and you can just, I mean, you can hand it to, you know, anybody you want to. Right. Uh, there's nothing on the drive that is meaningful or forensically recoverable if you have if you have encrypted the entire drive. So you, you don't have the, you know, the Derek's boot and nuke sort of problem or the need to worry about having securely deleted things. Um, it is just pseudo random data on the entire drive, so you can you know sell it on eBay and not worry that anybody is able is going to be able to get anything else from it ever. It's amazing. It's really it's a very interesting philosophical discussion. I find.
All right. Well, th- we've got links to that program in our show notes, so you can find out more. You can, of course, go to grc.com. That's where Steve not only puts his show notes, but also 16 kilobit versions of this show. So if you know somebody who doesn't have a lot of bandwidth but still wants to listen, they can listen to that lower quality version, and it's much smaller files, one quarter the size. You can also get transcripts there. And I think a lot of times people find it very um, nice to be able to read along, uh, even highlighting and underlining uh, information that they want to, uh, to keep track of. Those are all available from Steve's site, grc.com. Not to mention all the free stuff he gives away there. Great programs to, like Wismo for configuring your system or Shields Up for testing your router. All at grc.com. And, of course, that's also the home of Spinrite. The finest, the best, the one and only hard drive maintenance and recovery utility used for decades by geeks everywhere. <laughs> we need to come up with a slogan like that for you, you know. Saving the world one hard drive at a time, Mr. Steve. Actually, I, I actually do have a slogan. For oh, what is it? It works. <laughs> Typical Steve. Simple to the point. No frills. <laughs> it works. That's all you need to know. Hey, Steve, great to talk to you. Likewise, Leo. Have a great week. We'll talk again next week on Security Now. Security Now.